Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Tej Talks. Uh, if you haven't checked out the Property Duo Go Live experience, please send me a DM or look at any of our social medias. It's a five-day experience following uh, a HMO going from a shithole, literally, uh, to becoming a high-end East London HMO. So join us for that. We'd love to see you on that. Um, it's actually starting in a few days, I think. So yeah, send us a DM. But also, this podcast is with Tony Fares. Now, we are speaking, we spent half of the podcast talking about his work as an estate agent and his business is an estate agency um, and some of his work in auctions and how you can build better relationships and some of the things that estate agents like and don't like and a little bit of myth busting. Then we spend the other half talking about his JV partners, how things are structured, some of the deals he's doing um, and how quickly he's purchased things and the importance of relationships um, and risk mitigation. So this is a really enjoyable podcast. Uh, and if you're new or if you're struggling maybe to, to work with estate agents, this is full of tips to help you. If you haven't left a review for the podcast, please do. Um, I think I have the most reviews of any UK property podcast. So thank you to those of you who have left me reviews. To the rest of y'all, please, iTunes, Apple, or on the Facebook page. Thank you. Tony, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Good afternoon, Tej. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm looking forward to this one because you have an interesting history uh, in property and you've worked in a few different places and I guess industries or sectors within property that I think to a lot of property investors who, especially when starting out, can seem quite difficult or maybe there's not a lot of knowledge or understanding about them in the world or in books or in things like that so as well as talking about your own property investments and and everything you do as a a business owner I also want to talk about what you did before that because I know it will be fascinating for people but before we get into any of that how did your sort of you know your career or you know where did you begin in property so I think if I go back to being an actual kid, I was I was the guy who loved watching homes under the hammer, grand designs, garden force, you name it. I just had a fascination with property from probably about 12, 13. Um, my dad used to take us along to some of the local auctions. He was quite handy, bought one or two. We lived in them and then moved on to the next house. So there was a little bit of property background, but nothing official in the family. Um, but I suppose other than just an interest in it was probably when I went off to university. Um, I went and done a degree in estate management, which was an RICS accredited degree um, with the aim of becoming a chartered surveyor. Um, strangely, I took that path, but I didn't ever want to be a chartered surveyor, as mad as that sounds. Um, I always knew I wanted to get into the business side, um, become an estate agency owner. Um, so. That was really me puffing to, to learn in the theory of property. Uh, and do you, I mean, a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs like us, we always look at our degree and say, yeah, that taught me how to party and not go to lectures. D- you know, was your degree useful? Do you find yourself using it 
today? I think I'm probably one of the fortunate ones where my degree actually did give us a very good foundation in which to build property. Um, when you're doing an estate management degree, um, particularly the one that I've done, chartered surveyors don't re aren't really geared towards working in the residential sector because anybody can kind of value a residential house with the use of comparables. Um, whereas the angle that the course went down was it was commercial, residential, industrial, land. So it was very, very interesting for where I hope to go myself to have that ground in it and understand retail, the retail sector, to understand land and how getting planning added value. But across the course, we also done modules like investment. We done the history of building. So we went back and looked at horse hair and mud walls and things like that back in the day. So it was very good in that I got to understand the fabric of a building. I got to understand the theory behind investment, um, done valuation, you know, and covered a lot of commercial property, which a lot of people kind of to progression when you're an investor, you start with residential and move on to bigger things. I kind of started in reverse and learned all about that before I even got into the actual business. So you could call that a little bit of an apprenticeship, so to speak. Yeah, it makes sense. Definitely, definitely relevant um, for what you're doing in property. So how, you know, you said you wanted to own an estate agency. How did you go from finishing that degree to owning an estate agency? Did you work for other people first? Yeah, so obviously as part of any degree, there tends to be a gap year in year three where you go off to work for someone. And that was actually part of my chartered surveyor process to become chartered which I never got there, but we'll get into that shortly. Um, so I've done my year out with Pattinson's, which were the, the largest auction house in the Northeast, um, the biggest agent at 30 branches. And I spent a year there. Um, I went across a different couple of different departments. I spent some time in commercial, dealing with land and things like that, retail. I moved on to work, work in the auction part of the business. Um, and then obviously went back to uni for me finally, yeah, stayed on there part-time working Saturdays and whatnot. And then just obviously as I graduated, I went back and worked there full-time um, with one eye on getting chartered. Um, but kind of obviously always worked. I worked for them for quite a while and I used to love it. I was a valuer primarily and, and an auction manager when I was working for them. But I moved on to them to another company and you know what it's like. It's a sales business. Um, and I was strangely, I was laid off after selling 75 properties that weren't at an average fee of three and a bit thousand pounds. So, and the reason they laid us off was because they didn't want to pay that commission every month. So when I thought if I can make somebody that level of money and there's no loyalty back to me, I thought I always had one eye on opening my own estate agent at some point. I thought now's the time to do it. Um, so I remortgaged me flat. I had £10,000. I moved back in with me mum. So thank you, mum. I opened the doors of the estate agent, sat there. The phone didn't ring. Thought, sugar, have I made the right decision? Um, I have made the right decision. Luckily, we're still going seven years later. Um, and everything seems to be going well. And, you know, starting up an estate agency, is it difficult? Is it lots of paperwork, lots of regulation? Or is it sort of can just do it tomorrow yeah yeah it's 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 very very difficult business to set up off the ground i always say to, to some friends who are looking into business and things you know it's relatively easy to open a corner shop you know you take a premises you go out you buy your stock you start selling day one 
with an estate agency, I was putting houses on the market the first month that I opened and I wasn't getting paid for those because they didn't sell for six or nine months. And then the sale took another three months. That's if the solicitors were decent to go through. And then they'd take a month to pay as my invoice. So some houses I put on in the first month, I might have not got paid for a year. So it's a very, very delayed gratitude business. You don't get your money until a long way down the line. So very difficult business to set up. Um, and the regulation of property estate agents, which is coming in shortly, isn't coming in before time. You know, there is a lot of rogue agents out there. And I'm surprised that they can even make a living because it's quite a tough business to be in and certainly to open. Mm. And so when you first started, you know, I'm assuming like with any area, there's lots of other agents around. How did you generate business and, and get yourself known to now still be going this many years later? Um, I knew I needed a unique selling point. I knew this agency wasn't going to be opened for Joe Bloggs, who was selling one house and would move again in 10 or 20 years' time. I knew there wasn't repeat business to be had there. And because of my background in auctions over the seven years, you know, I met people like yourself on a daily basis, numerous people like yourself. So I had a very good network of potential clients and I needed to find a way to tap into that. And I thought, well, what are people doing and what don't they like about estate agents? And I found letting fees was quite a pain point for for investors. I think spending money is a pain point to start with. So <laughs> I found a good one to work on. And what i done was, for my unique selling point, I was actually the only agent in the Northeast who would let the landlords property free of charge. Now, there was method to me madness there. That was to build up my managed stock which would then provide a regular monthly income, you know, the 7 to 10% of the rent each month. So that eventually took over paying me bills. And I knew a lot of landlords were trying to self-let using Facebook, Gumtree, the local shop window. I seen some dodgy notes in people's windows with a phone number on saying, call me. And they were like three digits short of the number. So I thought I could do a better job than what they're doing. And I don't actually have to charge the landlord because at the time we could actually charge a tenant a, administration fee but that method obviously went out the window when the tenant fee ban came in so they kind of scuppered me business plan a little bit there but luckily we were nice and established by then interesting so i think what you did there was you hustled you said right you know what yes i could charge money up front but let me have that unique selling point let me go against the competition because the long-term vision of, you know, 7 to 10% a month is a lot better than struggling to get people through the door because you're new. So I like that you kind of, yeah, you were realistic about it. You looked at the market and said, this is what I'm going to do. And so, is, you know, is the estate agency primarily for buying and selling for investors? No, we do obviously have, we're kind, we're relatively um, different than most agents in that, most agents work, like I say, for Joe Bloggs, who sell a house every few years. Um, we have a very strong auction side of our business, given my background. Um, we're a gold partner with I Am Sold, which means you have to sell consistently a certain number of properties. So we're very good in that respect. Um, so we do have an auction part of the estate agency where we sell properties, but we also cater for our local board presence potential clients in the local area. Um, so, you know, we do sales, private and auction. We do lettings, we do management, we do mortgages, campaigns, and you name it, we 
we're connected from the agency point there. We cover what bases, but while letting side primarily focuses on investor landlords who have multi units rather than just single properties. Mm, okay. I've got some questions here that I think uh, a lot of, or some, some issues that people have with estate agents that people post on social media. And I want to know. How long have I got? <laughs> and I want to know if they're true, slash, if, if agents can do this. First one, I put an offer to an estate agent, and the estate agent um, is refusing to show it to the vendor. Is this legal, illegal, or is it kind of a blurred line? Um, it's probably. I would say it's probably illegal. Um, you've got a legal responsibility to report any offer to your client in writing, not just in a phone call. So I would argue in that instance, then they probably are doing something they shouldn't. And if if the if the agent is saying that to to me as an investor, how would you suggest I get around that? I think you've got to go direct to vendor using a land registry check. That's the the most straightforward one. Or knock on the neighbours and ask for the owner's number. It's surprising when I do it on the purchase side or my sourcing side of the business. I go direct the vendor a hell of a lot of the time. And I think it's because I can't trust agents to tie the deals up because I know what they like from working with them. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, can, can And this is out of interest, actually. If, if you have an offer accepted on a property, can you leave it on the market or does it have to be listed as sold STC? It can be left on the market, yeah. I think it's down to vendors' preference on that side as to what they prefer. Um, you'll see some agents not take a property off the market until we've had a satisfactory survey carried out because that's essentially the first hurdle we have to pass after verifying proof of funds in that a solicitor has been instructed. So it's up to the owner. Some agents take it off once the survey has been done. Some take it off once they've had proof of funds and solicitor details. It, I think it's just a preference from the owner's side, really. From our side, we still agree a property on accepting offer and having the the proof of funds, etc. Fine. Another one I hear is that people think that estate agents lie. So, for example, oh, you know, I put in an offer of this. Agent came back and said, "We've already had higher offers of this. You need to increase your offer." But the investor kind of, you know, has done their research, or they, I don't know, they have a bit of evidence that makes them think actually maybe there is no higher offer. Can estate agents sort of make up offers to make you increase your offer? Um, can they? Probably, they probably shouldn't, but they do. It's it's very, very common. Um, it's not something that obviously we practice, but I think sometimes it's, it's, it's essentially we're the middleman between a vendor and a buyer. A buyer wants it for as cheap as possible. A vendor wants as much as possible. We have to be the person in the middle who facilitates something that's fair from both sides, although we're actually employed by the vendor. So I think we'll probably end up seeing the, the British model of estate agency move to more how they do in America, where realtors where you have someone for the buyer and someone for the seller. Um, I think we'll end up getting to that way because of what you've just said. There's, there's some um, underhand tactics goes on to try to get better prices and to force buyers to increase their offers. But... Again, I think partly why that is is most buyers aren't educated enough to to know how to negotiate on their own behalf. And they do come in with some quite ridiculous offers. You'd be surprised at some of the ones I've had. <laughs> What's the craziest offer you've had? I've had offers of 35,000 for properties that are on the market for 100. And 
I'd just be real with the person and say, do you really think I wouldn't have bought that property myself if they'd kept <laughs> that sort of price? I'll give them 40. <laughs> so there's, there's got to be a degree of common sense, but you know, if you can justify the offer that you're making, you can back it up with comparables, the work that needs done, you've got a motivated seller. We will, as agents, be realistic and have that conversation. But some of these training courses are teaching people just to take the property prices on the market, deduct all your expenses, add a 25% margin and put that forward as an offer. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the issues is that people are not being educated on how to analyze a deal properly, how to stack it, how to, you know, if it doesn't work, how then to offer or how not to offer. So there's lots of little bits around offering and negotiating and a few sort of, you know, these 70% off offers you offer that aren't realistic, you only need a couple of them to have an estate agent be like, hmm, every you time you do a viewing something, right? You know, you, we, we obviously, because when I worked for Pattinson's, you know, they had three and a half thousand houses on the market. And I was in the auction department where we'd sell 300 every month. So we're doing volume. And your buyers would get known in the office and they'd say, oh, so-and-so's called up again and made another ridiculous offer. And people would actually just say to him, just tell him not, he's, he's not able to offer unless he comes back with sensible money. Because some of the offers that people are making, you're talking, they'd look at the whole the whole auction catalogue of 40, 50 properties. They'd come back with 40, 50 offers that were 40, 50% below the guide price. Even though they knew the reserve price was set within 10% of the asking price, and that was above. So... I don't know. There's, I think buyers' tactics have got a lot to be, a lot to answer for the agents' tactics that they're using to to get the balance. I think at the moment we might see that change with the regulation of agents. We'll see. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Learning how to offer and doing it properly is is an art or a science in itself. And yeah, I mean, hey, you may offer on fifty properties, crazy, crazy, one may go through, but. I think it's probably unlikely. And you know, we're talking about the seller and the buyer. You, as an estate agent, who do you who do you like say you work for? Who's your customer? We work for the vendor. Um, that's who pays us our fee, and that's what we have to try to explain to buyers. But you know, when markets are good, our job's very easy to do. When the market's bad, we do end up veering on to trying to get the balance where we're helping the buyer out at the same time. But Ultimately, we've got to be looking after the vendor's best interests. And you know, when property investors, so property investors, women knew, I think we're all a little bit kind of fearful of estate agents. We're like, oh, we call them up. They're going to, you know, not want to talk to us. You know, they're going to be, they're just going to be like, oh, whatever. They're not going to be interested. From your experience in working in different places and having your own, your own agency, you know, would you say that estate agents generally dislike investors or do you love them because of the repeat business but you don't like how maybe they approach you at the start what's your relationship with investors as an agent i would say we absolutely love you <laughs> um, me included in that you know you've got to remember agents are primarily on a on a base salary or a, you know they're on a basic wage we'll get what they get that their money from the commission they get that commission from selling a house so in the fact that you can sell a house to an investor, you're in commission there, that investor might then give you a back to rent out, which in a, so it's like double commission. So for me, when a house used to go on the market, when I first started, you know, I knew one or two investors' numbers off by heart because I knew the moment a house came on the market, if I didn't get the call into that investor, then I'd lose, I wouldn't get the commission on it. So 
I think a lot of agents love investors, but again, I think I think it's part of that thing. If you're an experienced investor, we absolutely love you. But there's a lot to be said for the novice investors, and they probably do get a really bad rep amongst agents. Um, and again, it comes back to I think they're not as well educated. They don't really understand the ins and outs of it. But everybody has to start somewhere. So you know, I think from my side, we take it with a pinch of salt if someone puts a silly offer in. But some agents really do get that back up. But what a funny bunch of agents, aren't we? I know I've had ones come back to me and say, "Don't offer unless you're going to offer something sensible." And I and genuinely, I'm, I'm not being like an investor here. I was not offering a crazy, crazy amount less. I was offering what I was probably offering a little bit too much. And I was like, "Ugh, okay, whatever." Um, to, like with that estate agent. So sometimes, sometimes we can still offer decent, and they get annoyed because they'll have 10 other investors who will offer asking or they'll have, you know, five other people who will offer asking. So it's kind of like we're always up against it. So I kind of get, you know, I kind of get but it. Like I don't from, the other se- from the other side, though, as much as there's investors who make ridiculous offers and they are ridiculous, some of the prices agents put them on it are ridiculous. Oh, yeah. All some agents long. use overvaluing as their tactic to sell a house. <laughs> and the amount of properties we've had come back to us six months down the line with our tail between their legs. We've been like, well, you know, we did tell you it wasn't worth £50,000 more than you were putting it on the market. We justified it. And I told you they were BSing you when you put it up. So it's just one of those things, though, isn't it? There's a, there's always going to be certain people that, on both sides of the table who, you know, just try to get business done in whatever way they can. Absolutely. And if you had to give three tips for those novice investors, you know, who want to start the relationship the right way and also i guess maintain it the right way with estate agents what would those three tips be the first one put a tracker on a value as car for the agent you think gets the best deals in your area <laughs> find out where they're going out um no on a serious note make yourself make yourself the value as best friend value as other people who control the properties that go into an agency and when I was a value offer agent, I would sell houses before I had went back to the office and even put them on the market. I'd rank people I knew would offer the prices that the property was being advertised at. So if you get to know the valuers, you'll get a head start on some of the properties. And that's where, from my new side of my business, the sourcing and investing, that's where I do really well because I've got all the contacts in the local agents. So... I make sure every Christmas they're all getting a bottle of wine off us or Easter, <laughs> I'm dropping Easter. The standard tricks just to keep people, to keep yourself current and keep yourself in their mind and, you know, just ring them up and just ask them, how's the market? Are you finding stuff selling quick? Just befriend them. But that's the biggest tip, befriend the valuers and the agent. Um, second one, second tip for any investors, I would say, this is a big one that's doing me some real great favours. When you're searching on the property polls, never search with, without including the sole subject of contract properties because you're going to miss the repossession properties. And if they are repossessions where they've gone to a public notice, which is where they publicize the offer on the details, you're going to miss that if you don't click that one box on social media, on the, sorry, on the polls. So include, include sole subject of contract on everything that you do. Um, and the third tip, I search listens every single morning before I even come into work. When I have me bath, I look at every single property 
it's keep him on the mark within 10 miles of my office in the last 24 hours because the speed in which you look at properties is what is going to secure you them. So today we've managed to secure a purchase. We were the first people through the door to buy it today. It wasn't due to go to auction until the end of August. We knew the seller was a corporate, but because it was at auction, we knew they were keen to get a deal done. So we've paid our premium already on that property before the block viewing at 12 viewings goes ahead on Thursday. And that's because of the rapport with the agents. So speed, speed is very, very important. And it's a people business, so make as many friends in the business as you can because trust is they'll it'll pay you back dividends over the years. I love that one. And just to I guess hear it from you as well, people quite early on with Asians say, Oh, I'm not I'm not making a relationship, I, you know, it's it's not going anywhere and it's been like a month. Would you agree that it takes time, like anything, to really get in sort of the agent's pocket? It does, yeah, 100%. Um, I think it's just about regularly booking viewings in with the same age. Like, you know, in Newcastle, there must be something like 250 estate agents. There must be something like 700 branches. You can't get to know them. So focus on one or two specific agents if you've got a specific area you want to invest and aim to build relationships in one office maybe, then branch out. And as you start doing more and more viewings in the patch, you'll get to know which girls do the viewings, whether there's an accompanied viewer, whether it's the value offer that company who does the viewings. And like you say, you'll build a rapport. How's your day going? Did that one sell that we viewed last week? And just, you know, to be fair, when I used to do viewings, I used to do something like 30 viewings a day for an agent. Half the people we used to let in the door didn't even want to talk to her. It was, it's like sitting on a, it's, I would liken it to sitting on a checkout. You, you put your food through and you don't ever talk to the person behind the checkout. So make a point of talking to the person, ask them how their day is going. You know, compliment them, look, oh, this is a great house, this, did you put this on the market? Ask them more questions. And if you show an interest in them, you know, it's people like people that will show an interest in you by, by default because they'll feel like they have to get to know you won't they yeah a hundred percent that relationship is so important I, i've seen it on like blog viewings or even just say someone came in after me or before me they wouldn't even like say hi or bye to the agent it would be like mm, walk in mm, leave and i'm like what? <laughs> is that how you communicate so sometimes just being a human makes a huge difference which is such an obvious thing but yeah i'll, I'll, I'll talk, tell you the best example i've probably got of that I got I shake hands on buying a property for 185000 Now, I used to work with a girl who was negotiating this at the, the auction where I bought it. She got one of her buyers to bid on it blind without having seen it, 200000 I subsequently went on to buy that property for 211000 But I shook hands with that vendor at 185 a week before the auction. And we left having agreed to you between us. And she scuppered that. But I still dropped her a bottle of wine and chocolates in at Christmas because I know she will inevitably probably make us that £25,000 back. As much as it killed us to give her the bottle of wine at Christmas, because I knew how much that cost us, she's also sent us some cracking deals in the last couple of weeks. So it's it's up and down, you know. It's a, I say it's a bit of a bipolar business. You have great days and you have some not so great days. You just got to take the rough with the smooth sometimes always and i think what you said about getting to know certain agents i've found that like 
there's some agents who I'm just never going to bother with because they only sell the super nice stuff or they just don't have the kind of stock I'm looking for. But then I, there's a couple which I'm like, yep, you got the shitholes, you got the rough houses, you understand investors. I'm spending my time in focusing here. So I think people naturally, you'll look at your list and say, whoa, 30 offices in my area. It'll end up being like four or five who actually can provide the kind of deals consistently because they just get them because of their reputation or because of, you know, there's someone like you running it who who understands it and, and wants those deals. It goes back to that tip that I said, number two, make sure you look at the last 24 hours listings, find out who's consistently listing the most properties that kind of fit your criteria and then just focus your attention on them. Inevitably, they want to earn money so they will work with you. And just before we move on to then your transition to like investing yourself, corporate sales, they always annoy me. Well, not, well yeah, corporate sales annoy me because they, the stay, they, <laughs> they stay on the market until they, you know, you get gazumped, all this crap. And I've heard that agents don't get paid much to, to list them either. Is there a trick or a way to kind of make it more secure or is it just deal with the risk? That's what it is, what it is. Um, well, it's it, they're a nightmare from an agency point, first and foremost, because the average fee is probably around six, £700. Uh, we make that on a let in some instances, which can take two or three viewings in comparison to when a repossession comes in the market. Yeah, there were 20, 30 viewings over the space of six weeks. It probably costs you more money to sell a repossession than you make. But it's the contacts that you make on those viewings that are your reward for doing that. They have strict policies in terms of they must be inspected once a week. We must sign to say we've inspected them. If you ever go out to valuation for a repossession company, they always send three agents, so you don't even know if you're going to get the business in the first place. They think they hold all the cards because they want their valuations returned within 24 hours. And they want photos of absolutely everything. So they're a nightmare to work with from an agent's point. From a buyer's point, they're, they're probably an even bigger nightmare. It's an absolute ridiculous way to sell a property from an asset management company in my eyes. I don't know why they just don't put them all at auction, knowing there's a cut-off period and the property sells, great. Exchange contract, move on. Because the amount of times people have been gazumped buying rebuild properties is it's beyond a joke. And I think we need to move like I said, awards maybe the Scottish system where if you put an offer and there's a legally bound side from the vendor's point as well, not just the buyers. I've lost properties when I've paid for searches, surveys, I've done applications for mortgage providers, and I've been three weeks down the line and I've lost them over the sake of two or three thousand pounds. Um I've known buyers glue locks on the properties that they're buying, they've gone that far. So there's uh there is some tricks out there, but I'm I'm not going to tell you whether I would recommend them or not. <laughs> yeah, they. every agent I've spoken to has the same thing. They say, I don't know why the hell we do this. Total waste of time. And then every and I don't even bother with them because I'm like, I just can't be bothered when there's other deals from other methods like auction that can just give a better result. Yeah, you're right, but you might be missing a little bit of a trick there. We've just bought one last month, but we had to complete on it in eight days. So you can do it, but it's like you say, you tend to, in an ideal world, to be on for show to getting them, you have to be a cash buyer in my eyes. And if you're not cash, personally, probably say move on. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Yeah, I agree. So you then moved into buying property yourself. So 
I mean, I guess it's an obvious sort of transition or something to do as well. But was there a certain moment or thing that inspired you to say, right, I'm going to be a property investor now and actually do this myself? Do you know what it is? I, I always wanted to be one. I always knew that I would end up investing in property. Um, like I say, my dad had dipped his toe in it a little bit when I was a child. You know, we bought a house, we renovated it. Then we moved on two years later. I seen my dad make money doing that. Um, he bought me granddad's flat on a right to buy and things like that numerous years ago. So we did, from a family, have a slight interest in property, but not professionally. And I'd just seen the amount of deals I was doing at auction and then seeing them going back on the market and three, six months after I had originally sold them and going, they've made how much on that property? £50,000, £30,000. Yeah, and I'm sitting getting paid £30 for each sale. You know, I thought I've got to get on the other side of the table here at some point. And you know what it is? My dad literally was in me yeah, for seven years, the whole time I've been open saying, we need to be buying, we need to be buying, because I had educated him on how the business really works. So he was going on and on and on at this. But it's one of those things you don't know what you don't know, and sometimes things just click into place at the right time. So once I left the agency six months ago and put a manager in place and had systemized it, had the processes in place, and I was comfortable that it could grow without me, that was the point I thought, right, I'm going to joint venture with someone and I'm going to go into investing. I chose, um, might have been by default a little bit, I, I ended up joint venturing with the biggest landlord from my agency. Um, so he's going nowhere now, he's not going to leave us, which is a bit security for the agency. And when I'll build him, because as much as he was our biggest landlord, he had done really well to get where he had with his limited knowledge. Um, he was probably more a success story with the prices rising than his own skill type thing. But he's quite a switched on person. But, you know, some people know more about other sides of the business than others. So, you know, he managed to do a really good thing and build that portfolio. And I thought, you know, he's a good person to, to get into business with. And, you know, fingers crossed if all goes well, we should have a portfolio Depends on whether an offer I've just put in gets accepted, but we should be up to 25 properties since November 2018. So I think what we're looking at maybe is 21 months for, to get 25 properties between us. That's, that's a good uh, property, almost more than a property a month. Yeah, it's doing well. we'll be, it's, it's probably coming at less than that because I think it's, it's about 15 at the moment in 18 months. So it's slightly less than that. And obviously, bit like everybody else, you know, as much as I was great at the auction side, I've learned some lessons as well. And I think, you know, there's too many people who share their success stories and they forget everybody makes mistakes. It's it's natural. We're humans. Yeah, especially in property. And we'll get to your mistakes shortly. Now, um, when everyone hears JV, they think a million and one different things. Can you share with us just like maybe a top level how you structure your JV with him? Yeah, so essentially, he brought some money. I put some in also. Um, we're probably now 50-50 on that side, but we weren't in the early days. Um, I've invested my time, my knowledge, and utilised his money. To... He wasn't familiar with buy, refurb, refinance. He was, but he was very familiar with high-yielding bottom-end properties. So he had managed to build a pot of cash in that sense. But I sat him down one day and said, look, you're doing this all wrong. 
you've got all your eggs in one basket that he had bought every property he had was in one area. And I'm like, you're really, really risky if that's your strategy. Because if one bad thing happens in that area, every one of your property suffers. And obviously he was leaving 25% in every property, which you know, from my side was mad. So he, he's now round to my way of thinking where if there's more than 10,000 left in the deal, then even he says no now, which it's nice to see because I kind of coached him along on the journey. And he's, he used to ring us in the early days and be like, I found work property. And I'd be like, it's not in that same area, is it? And it's not 50,000, is it? Because, and it became a running joke because he was presenting the same properties he already owned to us. I'm saying, but that's not the, that wasn't our angle. That wasn't what we were doing. So that's, so on that sense, I bring the, the knowledge and the expertise and the contacts. And he brought the money in the early days and now it's more of a balance. But as I'm doing other things, he now looks after that prop, property portfolio side of things. I don't really get involved other than on the purchase side. It's been a bit of a trade-off on roles and responsibilities in it now. Yeah. Uh, when you when you started off with this JV, was there a sort of goal or plan or strategy that we're going to buy X many high-yielding buy-to-lets or was it HMOs? Or how did you decide on and shape what your strategy would be? Um, it was down to the capital that we probably had available. And, you know, HMOs in Newcastle is a bit of a funny business with students moving further into the city, having purpose for property. So I knew HMOs wasn't for me. Serviced accommodation, while I do have one, that's my holiday home rather than an actual SA unit. I didn't want to go down that route. So I was very, very familiar with the buy to let and buy refurbi finance. Um, I, you know, worked alongside a lot of investors who were doing that day to day anyway. And kind of thought that that's the way to do it for us. Build it up to, to, to that it's a cash flow that then regularly adds another deposit to the portfolio now and again. So we'd always be growing. And eventually, once it got up to a certain point, we could start taking some sort of money out of the business. Um, you know, we're both relatively young. I'm only 33. He's 35. Um, you know, so we've definitely got time ahead of us. So we both don't need any money from this because, you know, I've obviously got my job working on property. He's obviously got his own interests. So I said, let's build something. And for us, it's more about building a bit of a legacy, building a portfolio that we can leave to family. And obviously enjoy the spoils of it once it gets up to the point where we're happy enough to start taking some money out of it. But considering where I believe the market will go in the short term, the next five years, I think we're quite happy just to continue to build for that period of time. And where do you think the market will go, actually, now you mention that? Personally, I think we're, we're definitely going to see a, a drop when the furlough scheme ends. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think because there's been so much money pumped into the economy, I don't think that recession will be what the papers are trying to say. I don't think the black cloud's going to be hanging over us for as long as they'd, they'd like to think. Um, because I think business will bounce back. I think we're quite a resilient com country. We've got a number of different industries. It's not like following the warm things like that, where we're heavily reliant on shipbuilding and the coal mines, in my, like, as we were in my area. We've now got tech companies, we've got retail, there's office companies, we've got manufacturers, so it's a bit more depth to what we do. So I think it'll bounce back. I think the short term, we're going to see some 
drops in prices, particularly end of this year. So we're going to focus. We're very, very conscious of our pricing and what we're buying at the moment, particularly on the revaluation side, given Sevilla's are, are sensitive at the best of times, but they're even more <laughs> yeah, so now. They've definitely got their niggas in the twist about COVID at the moment. Um, the comps aren't there for them to revalue at the prices we ideally want them to, so we're being conservative on the revals. But I think there's going to be some really good buys to be had at the back end of this year, heading into early next year. And I think maybe, my guess is, end of spring, summer next year, I think hopefully we'll start seeing some some improvements in the market. Because I think a little bit to do with this COVID, it, I liken it to Christmas. We've had two weeks where the agents are all closed. Nobody cares about buying a property in December, or us, only us investors, should I say. But then come January, in between Christmas and New Year, the market goes mad. Right move figures go through the roof in terms of views on the properties. And then January's crazy. And I just think, how can it go from being so quiet in December to so mad in January? And I think that's what we've had because we've had a little bit of a lack of supply while we've been in lockdown. The supply's now catching up with the demand a little bit from an agency point where we've listed more houses last month than we have in any month this year. That's no, I don't think that's any big achievement. It's purely down to the fact that we've been in lockdown. We're going out with so many valuations. I think looking at, we've got online valuation tools where people can price their properties on like a calculator. You're seeing so many leads come through from there. I think it's because there's a lot of uncertainty around people's jobs. Um, so in terms of motivated sellers, which is who we want to buy from, is investors, I think there's going to be a hell of a lot of them back end of the year. Hmm. Very interesting. Very, very interesting indeed. And just going back a little bit, you mentioned, you know, the challenges um, that you've had because you have bought, you know, quite a few properties in not to that in not a long time period. Talk me through some of the challenges, mistakes and issues that you've had and maybe how you resolved them. Um, I think communication is probably the biggest thing is to me. The biggest mistake I probably made was we had a property where we were under the impression that everything was fine, but the severe managed to flag asbestos in the property, which meant we had put a premium down at auction and we were under certain terms, but we needed the mortgage valuation in order for that purchase to go ahead. And the survey decided the property was worth zero, which I can never understand why they put a price of zero on something because it had to be worth something. Um, so in that sense, we had to negotiate with the auction. We had to say, look, we're happy enough for the purchase price, but we'll cover the cost of the new roof now. We always allow for a contingency anyway, so the, the, that was allowed. The, the, we always allow for risks that we can't always see because things like this can happen. Um, so in that sense, we just went back to the agent and said, look, you follow the sale through because the next person has the same problem. Are you okay to give an extra four weeks on the purchase? Which they were fine with. So it turns out I probably would have done the roof on that house at some point anyway, but it was £5,000 that we initially hadn't set out, but luckily it had been covered in my contingency. So that's probably the big thing where we've, we've had an issue. Um, other than that, I think, for us, it's, a, it's just about trying to mitigate any risks that you have, making sure the comparable prices that you're paying are correct and they are comparables within the last six months, which we know the surveyors want. Um, 
it's about having accurate refurbishment costs in, you know, which luckily because we manage twelve million pounds worth of property through the year and we're doing a lot of maintenance. So we I can more or less price something from looking at it now, knowing we've had so many jobs done over the years. So and then the, the back end is obviously just making sure that the time scale wise that you know, I think people who are buying now are gonna have a little bit of a shock because they're buying based on today's prices and comparables from three or six months ago. But come end of the year when the furlough ends, those comparables aren't going to be relevant. And there is a couple of motivated sellers at the minute who are letting things go for less than they perhaps should. So it's just about factoring all the risks and trying to minimize your exposure in any way you can. Mm. And, you know, would you say that, you know, even despite all your experience, and your contacts and knowledge, it is still stressful and it is still always a challenge and there's always some issue that comes up? Or do you think it's a bit easier than that because of your experience already? No, without a doubt, I think you can never know everything in property. It's definitely one of those businesses where you need to be continuing your development and you're always learning. Um, there's so many different types of construction. You know, as much as we used to see 20, 30 properties a day, you, do, you know, they, they do end up all looking the same at some point, but you do sometimes say things, go, oh, Jesus, I've never seen that before. So th there is even those moments for people like myself who've been in the business for 15 years. So I don't think you leave any stone and turn in. Obviously, as investors, you move away from single lets to multi-units and commercial conversions. You're going to build to rent. So you end up going into something that perhaps you didn't know as much about and then you need to just continue the, the learning journey, I think. Yeah, I agree. And am I right in saying you are doing or have done a second JV as well? Yeah, so the second JV I've done, strangely, this was when I was still working in the agency. I've done a valuation for a guy who inherited a house um, and he was going to sell it. And I said, also, oh, you know, just generally chatting, what are you going to do with the money? He says, I'm just going to live on it. You know, like for me, that's the cardinal sin. He's going to live on his actual, his inheritance. In the money would have disappeared. I think he was talking somewhere around about 100,000 on that particular property. I said, well, I said, that's not going to last you very long, isn't it? I said, why don't you just remortgage it? There was no mortgage on it. He ended up getting a 75% loan of value. I think his mortgage was something like 200 pound, which meant he cash flowed about 400 quid on it. And I said, so you would have spent a thousand pound a month out your hundred thousand. You can still live out that money that you've got, but now you've got an additional four hundred pound a month coming in. And he he came to us six months after we'd rented that and said, "Look, I've been thinking a hell of a lot about what you said on that valuation." He said it was like a light bulb moment for him. He says, "And I want to put all my money into property, but I don't know how to do it." And he said, "I would trust you to do that." So he said, would you be interested in going into business? If I put the money, will you buy the properties and we'll become partners? So purely from doing a valuation from the estate agency, I've ended up making a friend and a business partner. Now, we've gone on to buy a block of 10 flats between us. Um, there's a third partner to this as well, who's from a financial background. He, he owns a mortgage bloggers. So... We needed to use bridging on the particular property that were purchased. But just to talk you through the numbers on that, we paid 210000 for 10 flats. Now, t t the best part was eight of the 10 were let. Um, 
Now, the problem is there wasn't a full set of teeth between any of the tenants. You know, if they had 11 fingers, it wasn't just a buy, refurbish, refinance project. Don't get us wrong. They just come with some hell of a lot of risks. It had been a landlord who had neglected the property. He really didn't care about his tenant selection. There was water leaking in through ceilings. There was, uh, I think we pulled, we, we knew we needed to do a damp course on one of the flats. So we pulled the plasterboard off. And there was three layers of felt and three layers of plasterboard. So the guy had cut corners wherever he could. So it took some works to do. And, you know, we've more or less cleared all tenants out. There's only two who are actually left. Um, so we paid 210 for that for 10 flats, which I couldn't believe me. Look, and that's actually the one where I agreed 185. So it could have actually been 18,500 pounds for a property, which is absolutely mental. Um, but we have had, obviously, like I say, it's it's been a 12-month project. It wasn't just a get it completed, turn it around, get it refinanced job. You know, I've been a social worker for the last 12 months, which most estate agents and investors are these days. Um, we spent around about £50,000 on that. And we had our valuation booked in for two Thursdays prior to lockdown and were mortgage deals being pulled. And we were going for a revaluation of 400000 And that was based on having a a 15% reduction because we had multi-units in the same area. So if we split the title, we could probably send, sell those off for anywhere between forty and 50000 each. But the whole point is to retain the asset, retain the cash flow, and the high yielding as well. It should be over a 10% yield once, we've, once they're all fully left. And the tenant quality's changed. The properties are in much better condition than what they were. You know, there's been a lot of work to be done, but that was going to be a buy, refurb, refinance where we pull all our money out and more. Um, and I'm still waiting for the valuation today because the, the deal that we did were pulled. And the most frustrating part, Ted, is I'm stuck on bridging finance. Oof, that's always a, I've been there. I'm there now. It's it's um, no one likes being stuck on bridging finance. No, um, and they're, they're worse than the asset managers that we spoke about earlier. They want to know. <laughs> they want to know absolutely everything. Um, but we're hoping that our valuation is going to happen any day now. We're hoping the market's not going to affect it too much. Even if it does, I think we're more or less full money out on that one. So that's a it's an absolutely brilliant one. And, you know, me partners on this are over the moon that were bought it. But I still have to shake myself when I drive past and say, we actually picked all those properties up for £210,000. You know, when where you're living, you probably can't get a garage for that price. <laughs> for me, you'd be lucky to get a square foot for that. There you go. I think, you know, do, okay, do deals like that come up often? Multi-units like that, no. Um, I'm working on one at the moment. That's with a first year V partner. Um, but the value there is in terms of splitting the title and then refinancing it. So I haven't moved away from single buy, refurb, refinance projects. And that's my bread and butter for my clients who have portfolio build for. That's the sort of thing that I look for for them. Um, they, don't, they don't come up very often at all. And I think... When I actually found that property, I was quite lucky because I also always look on the commercial side, any property portal, and it was listed as a residential development. So actually, most people, I think, missed that because of that. 
And when the auction was put on the market, it went to auction something like 19 days later. So it wasn't particularly fully marketed. So I would argue I probably could have bought that, stuck it in all shops in London and marketed it for six weeks. And I probably could have sold that for 300 grand. Do you know what I mean? Because I think it was the, the fact that the agent hadn't marketed it correctly that probably meant I got it for the price I did. So big shout to Pattinson's, me ex-employer. You've done as a sound one there, thank you. <laughs> I think, you know, it's deals like that are amazing where you've got it, you've got, you know, you've got the keys or you're in legals and you're just thinking, I have, I have a few exits on this. I can just give these keys right now to an agent somewhere else or in the same area and I know I can make X amount of profit. So those deals when you're instantly in profit are, I just love them because you're just like, well, this is great. Whatever happens, you know. I'm the, kinda... the, best, the best thing with this one was because the tenant choice that he had in there. Um, to give you an idea, when I bought this, I exchanged on it at auction. Um, and one of my friends owns an agent down that way. And I, funny enough, I was actually on my way back from, I was on my way back from Wolverhampton. I was on an agent course there with... Um, Agent Rainmate and Sally Lawson. And I got a phone call to say, armed responder outside of your um, your flats. And there's a helicopter above. And that was before I'd even bought them. And I thought, oh, I've really let myself in for it. And I thought, I've exchanged contracts. Yeah, as well. Now, I still, despite that phone call, was thinking, it's still a great deal. I knew deep down that... Uh, That's exciting. That's good. That's I'd, good I'd found the pot of gold. But do you know what it is? Most people would never have seen past the social housing getting rid of the tenants and that is the is the that was where the value was you know the building had been neglected we've had it all re-rendered to a degree it's been repainted in a nice color and you know there's a local neighborhood watching stuff and said we can't believe the difference and it was only those 10 flats pulling down the area so i'm i'm quite happy to sit on those yeah and you know you've made a positive difference to the area around you and to the residents and to safety and, you know, the, the government and newspapers would hate that because you're doing something good as a landlord. How could you? We're all evil. Um, I think there's two things in, in the points you made. One is that, you know, you said, oh, I just met this uh, second JV just from evaluation. But it wasn't just evaluation because I think there's a lot of agents who would say, oh, you're going to live off it. Cool. No worries. Right. Well, here's your valuation. Let's get it sold. I want commission. But you did the kind of, I guess, the human thing and just said, mate, really? And you know, that puts you and other people who do that in a totally different percentile of people than most agents who would just say, yeah, I'll sell it for you. And Yeah, they're all about the fee. Yeah, and that is what made it more than just like a, um, a kind of valuation. And then secondly, you said, you know, the social housing put people off. You know what? I see every single person who comes on this podcast, they always say something puts someone off, whether it's short lease, legal issues, tenant types, subside you know whatever it is there's always something which puts the competition off when if you have the knowledge to fix it or the patience maybe in this case then you can get a great deal that other people are going to run from um and i think that's that's just solid you know we all know something that someone else doesn't so we should use it to our advantage and, and in our business um if you could have a billboard anywhere where would it be and what would it say on it where would it be and what would it say? Mm-hmm. Any Anything you want, anywhere you want. It would probably just be my name and say property investment, no bullshit. Because that's what I always used to say to people. 
we were a statement without the bullshit. It wasn't, it wasn't about selling for us. It was about, like you say, finding what new, finding out more about the person before we even looked at the property. Most agents go in and look straight around the house and then sit down at the end. I'd spend more time sitting down talking to a client than I would looking around the house because it takes you five minutes to do a set of photographs. But I needed to be understand the bigger picture and the wide angle. And that's what we do for our investors when we're buying now. We get to know them. What's your goals? Why are you getting into this? What's your exit? And understanding the person and their motivation was more important than understanding the numbers or why they were selling or anything like that. Yeah, I think that that's also a good tip for when like, we're going on viewings as investors. I think it's the same for me. I mean, it takes five, ten minutes to assess a house, but the rest of it, I'm there chatting to the agent for the rest of the viewing. And that, yeah, can get you more deals and better deals than can looking at the house, which might sound a bit like counterintuitive. But as you said earlier, it's all about that relationship and you being remembered and being kind of the person they think of. Um. What are the three biggest mistakes you've made in property investing? The first one was that roof. Mm -hmm. I probably should have, with hindsight, had the survey carried out before I bid at auction. But if I'd done that on every single property, I'd probably be out of pocket. So I understand it's a numbers game. There's always going to be something that crops up. And luckily, I'd allowed for that. That's the main one that stands out. Um, that one's probably always overestimate how long something will take because inevitably something always does or can go wrong. So we renovated quite a few properties for our clients as we came out of lockdown. And I wish I had known a good plasterer supply, plastering supplier because the stuff was like gold dust. So always factor in something for the unexpected time. And I think that's they're probably the main two that stand out. Um, Have you ever been ripped off by a builder? Um, I would be tough. we've gone through a hell of a lot of tradesmen. Um, I find with tradesmen that they're great for a certain period of time. You overwhelm them with work, or you start they start getting their feet under the table a little bit too much, and that's when the quality of our work and their expectations from them dip a little bit. So maybe that's a good one. Don't give too much to one person. Maybe spread the load across your, your your investments. People say that builders have an expiry date when they work with you, and I yeah, I definitely. It's gas engineers who I think have an expiry date. <laughs> that's why CP twelves are every twelve months because you should probably change your gas man that often. <laughs> but no, our gas guy's really good now. You know, he's he's, he's been with us for a long time, but we do tend to go with because we manage two hundred and fifty properties in the agency. We do burn through tradesmen because we, we can't suffer fools. And, you know, as much as to finish a job on a Friday at three o'clock, expecting to be paid at four o'clock so they can be in the pub by five, they just don't listen to what we're saying. The rent's coming on Monday, we'll pay you on Monday. They just don't get it. Mm. And I think that's more a business thing than anything else. Yeah, I think it's business acumen. Um, so Tony, earlier you mentioned, um, you know, we both kind of alluded to, you know, like property trainers and kind of novice property investors. I understand you're doing something yourself now in, in training or education? Yeah, so I'm completely out of the estate agent now and I've, I've taken the, the office accommodation above my office. Um, I'm working with a great girl, Kirsty Wallace, who used to manage one of the local auctions, so very much on the ground, a lot of contacts. 
she used to manage somewhere in the region of about 200 agency branches. So fantastic for for actual contact in the office. But like you said, they used to report to her on the prices on their auction properties. So she's now working the sourcing side of my business, which I'm stepping away from a little bit. And I'm taking on the coaching and mentoring because we're building, what I've, the reason we've done this is we're not doing it in the sense that a lot of training companies do, which I think there's good and bad out there, I might add. Um, the bad probably get more publicity than the good, which I think is a shame. But again, I'm hoping this regulation of agents changes that and makes the good stand out and the bad disappear. But the reason I've done it was because I think everybody's at a different stage in that journey. Some people need help just on their exit strategy and want some help or some mentoring in that respect. Some people want help in setting their limited company up and how they should be setting the structure for purchasing. Some people need help analysing the deal. Some people need help closing the deal. Some people want to know how to build a rapport with the agents. And I think most of this training from my side, it's too much for the theory. And I'm going to go the complete other way. I'm going to make it practical. So one of the things we do with some of our clients is we actually do a full day where we take them around properties we're interested in buying myself. We take them around current refurbishment projects. We go back to the office. We analyze the deals I've seen that day. I get the person to put the office forward on my behalf. And I report back to them on how that went following that. So we get them more involved in the day-to-day -day investing because so many people view 50 houses and never put an offer forward. So for me, it's about overseeing someone and helping them along that journey. So we do the full dating there, which covers everything from finding the viewings, how I found that viewing, all the way through to this is what I would be doing to that property by showing them another refurb project, through to showing them one of my completed ones to say, well, look, we're doing the viewing with a tenant now, and I'll actually go and do one of the viewings from the agency downstairs and take the person along. So they get to see a little bit of the agency, but they also get to see the investing side. And if they book on the right day, they also get to attend the auction with us on the evening. Now, that is absolutely priceless because most people at auctions don't know you can actually be the only person bidding in the room via a process called phantom bidding. And they can actually be bidding on their own with nobody else. So we actually take them along and say, so did you see anybody bid on that property there? And they say, well, yeah, the guy said there was the woman in corner where I said, there was no woman in the corner at all, men sitting over there. So we teach them all that side of things. But one of the things that I wanted to do was I see so many people going away and spending thousands of pounds on a weekend where they're learning theory in a classroom for two days with no practical side to it. So the other part that we do other than the full day is we do a like a 12-hour mentoring program where we let the client break that down into... We typically suggest it's six two-hour slots or 12 one-hour slots. So they learn a specific thing in each part, which is based on whatever their pain points or challenges are. They go away, they digest the information, they come back next week with more questions. Because it's like you say, for me, it's about it's like a Jenga block. I've got to try to build them foundation so that the Jenga block doesn't fall. Because you can go on these theory courses, spend a couple of thousand pounds, go out and buy a property and go, oh my God, what have I done? So hopefully we're trying to help the person manage the risks and what they're buying in. You know, it's 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 more than you get a lot of value from it, I think, that way because it's it's one on one basis as well. Cool. Definitely sounds different. And 
Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I'll put your contact details in the show notes so people can find them. But if people do want to get hold of you, what's the best way to do it? Well, Ted, I'm going to give you a link to a free Newcastle investment guide because I think this is the place to invest. Um, given the Savills forecast of almost a 20% increase in the next four years. Just a plug for Newcastle there. Good Geordie lad. So thanks for having us on. I'll give you the link to that investment guide. Failing that, it's Tony Fairs, North East Property on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn. My agency's called Fairs Estates. Um, feel free to drop us an email, pick up the phone, or pop in the office phone. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.